With me, please, to page 775, page 775 of our Bibles, if you've got one of those. Jonah chapter 3, if it's your own Bible. We've been working our way through the first couple of chapters of Jonah. Uh, We'll carry on tonight and then finish next Sunday before our carol service the week after. Once you're there, let me lead us in prayer and then read God's Word to us. Thank you, almighty God, that you are a God who loves to save, that salvation belongs to you. And as we see evidence of your saving power, your grace, your compassion, again in our passage this evening, we ask that you would fill our hearts with confidence that you still care about our world and you still love to save people who don't deserve it. Would you teach us what a true response to you looks like? And would you empower us in your service, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read to us then from Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. As ever, please keep that open in front of you. There's also an outline on the back of the little notice sheet as well. Well, let me take you back a couple of hundred years to Kingswood, a little village just outside of Bristol, a rough mining town. Um, In some of the books of the time, the locals are described as being less civilized than savages. Uh, Anyone from Bristol? or sort of surrounding areas, this, this, it may fit. We'll find the nearest Bristolian or the nearest thing we've got to one. Uh, very few had even a basic education in uh, Kingswood at the time. Living conditions were pretty appalling and gangs routinely terrorized the countryside. Uh, so if people could avoid the area, you can think of the equivalent today, they usually did. But there was one guy, he was just um, 25, and he felt a really deep burden for the people who lived in that town. And he longed for them to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. 
And there were no church buildings in Kingswood at the time, but so he decided he'd have to stand outside to start talking to them. And so Wednesday, the 21st of February, 1739, George Whitfield began preaching in the open air to some of uh, the miners. Records say that 2,000 gathered to hear him as they came up out of the pits that day. Two days later, the numbers had doubled. Between four and 5,000 were getting together. By Sunday, 10,000 were there listening to his preaching. Soon, 20,000 were gathering regularly to hear what he had to say, gripped not just by his incredible oratory, but it seems by the power of the message that he was proclaiming. On one occasion, he preached from uh, a verse in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he spoke to this sea of miners of hell, which he described as being as black as a, a coal pit. And he spoke to them of Jesus, the friend of sinners, And he promised that if anyone trusted in Jesus, they could be forgiven of all of their sins. The gospel we love to proclaim week by week here. He wrote in his journal later that as he preached, he started to see many weeping for their sin. And as he described it, their tears formed white gutters down their coal black cheeks. Many were converted that day and in the weeks that followed. And what happened in Bristol began to spread Similar preaching, uh, Whitfield and others in Gloucester, in London, even across the Atlantic. Historians today call it the Great Awakening. Uh, most of the time, in most phases of history, the, the progress of the, the good news of Jesus, the gospel, is relatively pedestrian. There are a few individuals who are impacted here and there for Christ. That's what's happening in St. Andrews at the moment, in ones and twos, people find out about Jesus and come to know him and to love him. But just occasionally, revival hits. It goes viral. Uh, Happened again in Wales in 1904, happened in Nigeria in the 1980s, it happened in some of the Western Isles, I think, in the 50s and 60s. And if you read the accounts of what God has done on those occasions... You cannot but long for a similar thing to happen in our own day. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the whole of St. Andrews was gripped with a passion to know Jesus Christ? Can you think of how our whole nation could be transformed once again by the preaching of God's Word? Why talk about revival? Well, because we're looking this evening at I guess the greatest urban revival in history. Uh, People read the book of Jonah, they tend to think the big deal, the big miracle is all to do with the fish. Bigger by far, I'd say, is what happened in Nineveh that we've just read about. Here is a city full of God-haters who turn back to him in repentance and faith. Uh, And I'm suggesting that God has four lessons for us from our chapter this evening. First is that judgment is coming a sobering lesson. Verse 1, let's read it again. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, because obviously the first time he ran in the opposite direction, and saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Before we dive into the message, we should enjoy the fact that God is 
dealing with Jonah at all. It's a lovely picture of his patience and grace. God had told Jonah, get up and go to Nineveh. Jonah said no, ran in the opposite direction. But God was kind and patient and gave him another chance. Uh, theologian called Palmer Robertson wrote, when a believer gets it wrong, uh, enjoy this if you're a, you're a Christian this evening, God forgets and never holds the thing against you. He says, think of how wonderful are the implications of that one fact for your life, that God simply, if you're trusting in Jesus, does not hold grudges against people who humble themselves and ask for his forgiveness. It's a wonderful thing. There aren't many second chances in our world today. You know how if a public figure says a wrong word or they find a tweet that a public figure said 10 years ago, people are hounded. But God is the God of second, third, fourth, and more chances. His mercies are new every morning. God's mercies will continue to be new every morning until we wake up in glory. And so Jonah's not just forgiven, but he's recommissioned in God's service. So verse 3, he arose, he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. He called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, a population of about 120,000. That makes it about the same size as Dundee if you've ever been there, or Cambridge if you applied there. When it says um, it was three days in breadth, it most likely means that it was worth a, a three-day visit. But um, it's not the kind of place you'd have on your bucket list to visit because it was a, a city that was famous for its evil. Uh, the prophet Nahum calls it a city of blood, full of lies, says it's full of plunder, never without victims. It's streets piled high with dead bodies without end, that kind of place. But remarkably, God still cared about Nineveh. He said the other day he didn't send it an airstrike, he sent it a prophet instead. When verse 3 calls the city exceedingly great, literally it means it's great to God. Because for all of its evil, God's pity reached even down to Nineveh. It's a bit like when Jesus looked at the crowds of his day and he knew all about their sin and immorality, that one day soon they'd be demanding his crucifixion. But his first reaction wasn't anger, but to have compassion on them. Jonah had given up on Nineveh, but God hadn't. And so he sent him to call out 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Um, that same word is used earlier in the Bible to describe the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The message is unambiguous. God has seen your evil, and if nothing changes, you will be judged. Jesus uh, speaks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. Uh, he says this is how it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out, and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I hope we know that judgment isn't the whole of the Christian 
message. We'll think about that again as we've been thinking about it all evening, and indeed we were all morning. But it is an unavoidable part of it. If the only thing that we ever talk about is the benefits of being Christians in this life, some will struggle to see why they need Jesus, because they've got it all going on already. That doesn't mean we need to get all medieval about it or walk around with a loud halo proclaiming that the end is nigh when you go out singing your carols in a couple of weeks. But we do need to tell people that Jesus didn't come to offer an optional lifestyle package. He came on a rescue mission to seek and save people who were lost. And I hope we can see how loving this is of God like the, the parent that says, don't run into the road, or a bottle that says, danger, chemicals inside. The purpose of the warning is to protect, to save from real danger. Imagine you're um, walking down your street at night, and you see that uh, one of your neighbor's houses is on fire. There's a fire taking hold downstairs while they sleep upstairs, apparently oblivious. I don't imagine any of us would cross to the other side of the road or dash past because we were late for our dinner. We'd want to bang on the door. We'd want to scream and shout. We'd want to give a warning and say with God, our town is full of people who know nothing either of the danger of judgment or of the love of our Savior. Peter says God is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you. He doesn't want that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And that's our second point. Judgment is coming. Repentance is therefore necessary. Uh, the response to Jonah's proclamation was pretty dramatic, as you see it in verse 5 there. The people of Nineveh believed God. It's interesting because they heard Jonah, but they believed God. Uh, like the Thessalonians in the New Testament, some of you have been studying it on your, in your life groups, they received Paul's teaching, do you remember, not as the word of man, but as it really is, as the word of God. That's the way it was with these guys as well. So verse 5 again, they called for a fast, they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them, and the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Because who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And notice the breadth of the response. Everybody's involved in it. You've got from the greatest of them to the least, the, the royalty, the intellectuals, the celebrities, the criminals, the loan sharks, the lawyers on the other hand. And notice the depth of the response too. It, it touches their head, their heart, their hands, and their voice. So in their minds, they believed the word of the Lord. In their emotions, they felt deep sorrow and regret for their sin. And so in acts of deep self-humiliation, they fasted and put on sackcloth. It's no worldly sorrow either because it transformed their behavior. 
They turned from their evil ways and they put an end to the violence of their hands. That's the, that's the heart of repentance in the Bible. It's a, it's a change in mind and belief that leads to a change in behavior. Like when you do a U-turn in your car, you stop going the wrong way, in this case away from God, and you start going the right way, surrendering yourself to God and his will. And so finally came their voice, they prayed, each of them instructed to call out mightily to God, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I wonder if we can picture what it must have been like as Nineveh went into its own kind of lockdown. Um, shops closing, weddings postponed, schools shutting, not to hide from a virus, but to ensure that everyone can give themselves in undivided repentance to God. And I love the sight of the king personally in verse 6. He rises from his throne. He removes his royal robe. It's like he's abdicating in the, the text because he's realizing that there is a higher throne. There's someone who matters more than him. There's a king of kings. There's a lord of lords. There's the, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land and Nineveh and you and me and before whom we will all one day stand. And maybe most remarkable of all, remarkable of all is verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. You, you spot, it seems they didn't even know for sure that God would have mercy. But they dared to hope that he might. And so they cried out to him. As always with Bible study, the question to ask is why? Um, when Jonah came to write his memoirs, why did he choose to include this extended account of the repentance of Nineveh? Remember, he's writing for the people of Israel. Part of the answer must be that he wanted them to just be excited that God's a saving God, that he wanted them to share in God's uh, compassionate heart for the world. But there's got to be more to it than that. Do you know that the big mistake that the people of Israel were making at the time of Jonah's ministry is that they themselves, even as God's people, were refusing to repent. So for generations, they'd been abandoning God and serving idols, and God had sent them lots of prophets and told them to, to turn back to him, but they would not turn. Hosea says, uh, another prophet in the Old Testament, the pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God nor seek him for all this. So the one thing that God wanted his people to do was repent. And the reason that Jonah details the repentance of Nineveh is to say to Israel and to her king, this is what you lot are meant to be doing as well. And if you don't, then the judgment that God promised to Nineveh will come upon you instead as well. Because if God cares about the sins of Nineveh, how much more will he care about the sins among his own people? In part, then, Jonah 3 is a rebuke to anyone who, who says that they're committed to God, but in reality ignores his word 
and refuses to repent. And that's exactly how Jesus uses this passage in Matthew 12. If you've got a magnifying glass, you can see I put a verse or two on the sheet there. In the context, um, there's some Pharisees who are demanding a sign from Jesus to prove that he really is who he claims to be. And in response to this demand for a sign, Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So you see the parallel. The people of Nineveh, they only heard Jonah preaching and they repented. So what have you scribes, you Pharisees? You've had God in the flesh preaching to you, and you're refusing to repent. You've rejected God's clear revelation, and so you deserve his great condemnation. And the message today is the same. The, the people of Nineveh will either be our role model showing us what it looks like to repent, or they will be our judges because we refuse to follow their example. It's not enough merely to say that we believe in God. It's not enough merely to go to church and say our prayers if at the same time we're really thinking we know better than God and don't care what he says. It is possible to be in a church that loves God's word and at the same time to harden your heart to it. But God is not fooled. He says, your righteous acts are like filthy rags in my sights. Because what he cares about supremely is our heart. Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. And so second, repentance is necessary. Third, more positively and encouragingly, mercy is available. Mercy is available. Verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Uh, at first sight, it probably didn't look like the most uh, promising missionary endeavor uh, you've got one of the most reluctant evangelists in history going to one of the, the most evil cities in history and uh, to announce its destruction. You, you don't have lots of hope for what will happen next. But part of the message of the book of Jonah is that salvation belongs to the Lord and that he's a God who is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and re relenting from disaster. And so even when you're as evil as Nineveh or as Israel or as us, if we repent of our wrong and turn back to him, he will have mercy on us. There's no he may about it. The cross proves the certainty of it. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I'll never drive away. And even to a thief who was hanging on a cross next to him, 
when he trusted in him, he said, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. And if you're an Israelite sitting in exile, that teaches you an important lesson because as you sit by the rivers of Babylon and you weep and you mourn for all that you're suffering, you, you know that your fate isn't the result of an unwillingness on God's part to forgive, but it's because of your own obstinate refusal to repent. And in that way, the salvation of Nineveh is the vindication of God. There's going to be, if I can put it like this, no one in hell saying, if only God had been more gracious and kind. If only he'd been more generous, I might have stood a chance. Because as we've been thinking all evening, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, let me just say here that this talk of God relenting doesn't need to alarm us. Some people have said, oh, if God's changing his mind about the destruction of Nineveh, how can, be sure, how can we be sure he won't change his mind about saving us? Uh, surely this means God isn't really consistent and that sort of stuff. Uh, Numbers says God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. In his being, in his word, in his promises, God never changes. Um, Gregory was a, a bishop in a place called Nyssa in the fourth century. He expressed it neatly. He said, um, God is incapable of change because if God changed for the better, then he wasn't God before. And if he changed for the worse, then he's no longer God now. So when God relents, it's not because he's changed, it's because Nineveh has changed. Again, picture a parent saying to a child who's playing dangerously on a busy road, quick, get out of the road, you're going to be run over. We all know that the parent isn't making a prediction that the child is necessarily going to be run over. What they're doing is giving a warning so that it never happens. Well, listen to God in um, the verse I put on the sheet, Jeremiah 18. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. So that's what's happening here. God is doing what he always intended. He's using Jonah to warn the Ninevites about his judgment precisely because his mercy is available and he wants them to receive it. So rather than being worried about it, we should be excited. Because here's the take home for us. If mercy was available even to them, then you can be sure it's available to us today. So you could be a, a Christian here this evening, but you know that you've been hardening your heart to God's word in some way. You've been living in a way that you know displeases him. You could be an interested observer in Christian things. You could worship a different God altogether. You could be as evil as a Ninevite. And the mercy of God is broad enough to reach even to you. Mercy is available. Love so amazing, so divine. Demands my soul, my life, my all.
finally this evening, revival is possible. Uh, and the reason that revival is possible is because the word is powerful. It, it's interesting the way it's reported to us. It, it's just one sentence. Um, it may have been that Jonah said a whole lot more than one sentence, but one sentence is recorded, and 120,000 people repented on the spot. And you know that the Lord our God is no less powerful today. The thing he's trying to underline in our hearts as we read Jonah is that he can do whatever he pleases, and what pleases him is saving lost sinners. And when he chooses to work in power through, by his spirit as the seed of his word is sown, he can produce fruit 30, 60, even 120,000 times what is sown. So I had this little picture in my mind. Uh, Rishi Sunak holding a press briefing flanked by Hamza Yusuf on one side and Mark Drakeford on the other. He's from Wales. You, one or two of you will have heard of him, but he's the, he's the other guy. Uh, and they're not dressed in uh, suits. Uh, they're dressed in hair shirts. And they're standing in front of 10 Downing Street and all of the camera bulbs are flashing. And then when they stop, Rishi addresses the nation and says, friends, I have sinned. In fact, we have all sinned and flouted the authority of the living God. But we've been warned in God's word that judgment is coming and it is well deserved. But Jesus is a wonderful savior. And so we need desperately to repent and to ask him for mercy. And then can you imagine what would happen to the video, how it would go, just blow up around the world if all three of them were to get on their knees and to implore the assembled media and everyone at home to do the same. And they say, please let everyone call out mightily to God and let's all of us turn away from our evil and violent ways. And they each take it in turns to say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the equivalent of what happened in Nineveh on that day. And revival is possible because the word of our God is that powerful. And doesn't that make you want to pray? Lord, please may your word speed ahead in our land and be honored. And doesn't it make you want to play your part in sowing the seed of God's word? all around us. God hasn't sent all of us to preach in a foreign and evil land. But we know, we often say that he has sent all of his disciples out into the world to go and make disciples of others in the power of the Holy Spirit. And all through church history, it is these truths about the certainty of judgment and the offer of mercy and the power of the word that have driven God's people on in the task of making Christ known. Just occasionally, God does that work in dramatic revival through incredibly gifted people like George Whitfield. But most of the time, the progress of the gospel is relatively pedestrian. And it's achieved not actually through gifted preachers, but through ordinary Christians like us.
Um, the early Christian apologist Tertullian wrote this about the rapid growth of the church in the first 150 years or so after Christ. He said of Christians, we're but of yesterday, and yet we have filled every place among you. Cities, islands, fortresses, towns, marketplaces, tribes, companies, palace, senate, forum. We've left nothing to you except the temple of your gods. How did that happen? Well, one historian wrote, it became the most sacred duty of a new convert, the most sacred duty of any convert, to diffuse among his friends and relations the inestimable blessing which he'd received. In other words, so blown away by what Jesus had done for him or her that they wanted to tell everyone about it. Another said the most numerous and successful missionaries of the Christian religion were not regular teachers, but Christians themselves in virtue of their loyalty and courage. It was characteristic of this religion that everyone who seriously confessed the faith proved of service to its propaganda. We cannot hesitate to believe that the great mission of Christianity was in reality accomplished by means of informal missionaries. Friends, God, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you are also commissioned as a disciple maker, as an informal missionary. Judgment is coming. Repentance is necessary. Mercy is available. The word is powerful. So may God help us to repent and to spread the good news of his son. Shall we pray? We are humbled once again, Father, to think of your mercy. When we think of the wrong in our own hearts, we know that we deserve nothing but your judgment. We would have no complaint, surely, if one day we were to be condemned. And yet, Lord, you did so love the world that you sent Jesus to die, to take the penalty for our sins so that we could be forgiven and made right in your sight and filled with your spirit and put to work in your kingdom. And we pray, therefore, that you would help us to keep short accounts with you, that you would help us to be a people whose whole lives are marked by repentance when our wrongs are become evident to us, may we be quick to repent. And please, Father, by the power of your Spirit, would you help us to take this glorious message of mercy to the land around us and the people around us that need it. And we dare to pray that it would please you once again in our land to work in mighty power and in other places in your world too, that we might see a mass turning back to you and a claiming of the mercy that is freely available to all who trust in Christ. And we pray it for your name's sake. Amen. We're going to close our time together by singing.